Well, we are continuing along in our series in Jonah, where we've been looking at God's scandalous mercy, and today we come to Jonah chapter 3. I invite you to turn there to follow along. Uh, You can find it printed in your bulletin on page 7. If you're following along in a pew Bible, it's on page 775, back in the Old Testament section there. And uh, we'll be looking at chapter 3 today. Next week, we'll look at chapter 4 and finish up our series. We left off with uh, a pretty intense part of the story. Jonah was just vomited onto dry land after spending three nights in the belly of a great fish. And if we think back to what's been happening with Jonah, he has gone down as low as he can go, all the way down to the watery depths. And an important factor to keep in mind that we find in chapter 1 is the reason that Jonah went down so far in the sea, the reason that he was thrown into the sea in the first place was because of his rebellion against the Lord's command to go to Nineveh. It was his sin that brought this whole situation upon himself. But the Lord mercifully saved him, and now he's back on the stability of the land. But as we come to chapter 3, the question is, what now? Has Jonah really had a change of heart? How will Jonah now respond to being delivered by the mercy of God? And as we look at Jonah's response this morning, it will help us consider how we, as those who have had God's mercy expressed to us, how we respond to that mercy as well. So hear God's word as I read Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you asking for your help. We pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts to hear, understand, and believe 
your word. We pray that you would convict us where we need it. We pray that you would show us afresh your mercy. And we pray that you would help us most of all to believe that it is truly for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, as we consider this passage this morning, we'll do so in three points. The first one will be just kind of considering the text, a story of two responses as we look at what takes place in Jonah 3. And then the following two points will be by way of application, Jonah's response to God and Jonah's response to others. And so let's begin by considering this story of two responses that we see here in Jonah chapter 3. You may be able to tell as I read it that the the purpose of this chapter is really for us to notice the sharp contrast between Jonah and the people of Nineveh. It basically slaps us in the face. First, we see how Jonah responds to God coming to him again in his word, uh, with his word and his command. Chapter 3, if you may have noticed in verse 1, it begins almost identically to how the book began. If we were hearing it all in one sitting, we would think, wait, did I just zone out and we're still at the beginning of the book? Because it's, it's word for word what's taking place except for just a few changes. The word of the Lord comes and calls Jonah to rise and to go to Nineveh. This is on purpose. We're supposed to see this as a restart of sorts. And there's one key word that really highlights that there in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Or the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. Usually, if we were reading through our Old Testament and seeing what was said of the prophets, when the word of the Lord comes again, it's usually to clarify or further explain something that the Lord has already revealed. But here, this is for a second chance. This is the only time a prophet in Scripture receives a second chance at delivering the word of God after his rebellion. And so this kind of deja vu experience as we come to chapter 3, it raises suspense for us. Has Jonah changed in this restart? Or is this kind of like the book of Judges where we're just going to see a cycle again and again of the same thing happening? And so we don't really know. And the suspense is heightened by Jonah's silence. Often if the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, uh, there is some sort of dialogue about that commission. It's not uncommon for a prophet to object at first and they go back and forth until the prophet's convinced and then goes forth in obedience. Now we know that Jonah had a major problem with what God had called him to do. We saw that in chapter 1, the fishiness on his skin screams it loud uh, as we come to chapter 3. So he has this major problem with this call to go to Nineveh. And when the Lord first came and called him to go to Nineveh, Jonah rose and he silently went the complete opposite direction. He silently disobeyed. This time, he silently rises and goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Okay, this seems good. But what is in his heart? We haven't heard yet from him. And so we're on the edge of our seats. Is this, is this just silent compliance? So Jonah makes this long journey. If he were to go from Israel to Nineveh, which he may be even further than that, it's about 500 miles northeast 
to the city of Nineveh. It would take him about a month to get there. It's plenty of time to think about his experience in the belly of the fish. But as Jonah arrives there, we find out he obeys and he proclaims the message that the Lord told him. And this message is just five words in Hebrew. It's possible that Jonah said more. It's possible that this is all that he said and that this is exactly what the Lord instructed him to say. We're not exactly sure. And so, so far, so good. He went and he called out. But there's this interesting description of Nineveh in verse 3. It says that the city of Nineveh is three days' journey in breadth. Now, there's debate about what this means. Does it take three days to go through the city? Does it take three days to go around the city? Either way, that would be an enormous city uh, of the day. It could be that it's because it's an important city, it's, it has a three-day protocol for visiting the city. If an outsider is to come to the city and deliver a message, that's going to take a day to be welcomed. Second day, have an audience with the king. Third day, have the appropriate goodbyes. That's possibly what's going on there as well. Again, we're not totally sure. But regardless of the exact meaning, the three days in the one day raises a contrast for us, doesn't it? If a normal visit takes three days, Jonah goes in one day and he gives this message. Later, what we'll realize is Jonah doesn't even take the message all the way to the king. It's like he comes in a bit, says what he needs to say, and then he's done what he needs to do. So all throughout this description, part of what we're supposed to see in the beginning is that questions are raised about how Jonah is actually responding to God's word and how he's responding as one who has received God's deliverance. And it sure seems like this is at best a half-hearted attempt at obedience on Jonah's part. Next week, as we come to chapter 4, we get to find out what's really in Jonah's heart, and it confirms that he was never in it, even as he's going through these motions of obedience. And so we see Jonah's compliance here in verses 1 to 4, but then notice the contrast with the people's repentance. When we come to verse 5, it just stops us in our tracks. It says, and the people of Nineveh, and remember, Nineveh, of the kingdom of Assyria, some of the most wicked people you could think of on the earth who made for their image, their whole brand was, we do evil, we terrorize, and you don't want to be on our bad side. That is what they did. Put that on a t-shirt. Visited Nineveh and survived, maybe. And so when we come to this, we have to hear all of that. And the people of Nineveh believed God. This statement is used elsewhere in Scripture to speak of genuine faith. These are the same words that are said of Father Abraham back in Genesis 15. Whoa! A five-word sermon elicits true faith among some of the most wicked people of the day. If we ever in our minds think, I don't know if God's word could really do something, Jonah 3 does give us hope, doesn't it? And what, and it just goes on to show how thorough this repentance was. It emphasizes that this was among all the people. 
It says from the greatest to the least. Now, what's interesting here is the order that this happens. Normally, if a prophet's going to come, bring a message to the city, the prophet goes to the king, and the king then makes a declaration because the king's the representative, and then the people follow. But Jonah, only going in one day, didn't even get all the way to the king. The people hear this, and the people repent. And so it starts with the people, and then the king's response puts this seal of approval upon their repentance. And notice, they all fasted, and they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is this uncomfortable, coarse cloth, typically made from goat hair, that you would put on as a sign of mourning, showing that because you are grieved, you are forsaking some earthly pleasures and comforts. In their culture, to fast and to put on sackcloth showed grief, it showed humility, and it was a display of repentance. And even the animals did this. Now, I would love to see a video of this. You know, traveling through Nineveh. It can sound a little weird to us, right? The animals wearing clothes. Some of us might like to put sweaters on our cats or dogs or something, but I don't think, I don't think any of us bust out the sackcloth um, when we see the flag at half mass or something like that. But in their culture, um, this was not unheard of in the ancient world. The Bible speaks of the interconnectedness between the sins of people and the effect that that has upon the created world, including animals. The prophets, when they're indicting Israel and Judah, one of the things that they speak about are that animals in Israel who are groaning and suffering because of the people's sin. And Paul speaks in the New Testament of all of creation groaning under this curse of sin. So the Bible understands this idea, and then if we think of it through their cultural context, the fact that the people and the animals are participating in this fast and wearing sackcloth shows the scope of their repentance. If you show up to Nineveh and the animals have sackcloth on, they are taking this very seriously. And then the text makes clear that this isn't just the outward signs of repentance, of fasting and sackcloth, which someone can fake, right? The people of Israel did this over and over again, but their hearts weren't changed. This was also a moral reform. We see this there in verse 8. The king says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. They changed their behavior. They repented of the very thing that the Lord said he had against them when chapter 1 begins. And notice in the repentance, they threw themselves upon God's mercy and they left the rest up to him. I love how the king speaks of it. Who knows? It's perhaps, perhaps God will spare us. But you know what? That's up to God. We're just going to repent and do what's right. Isn't that amazing? And so what does God think of this? What, you know, as we're trying to sort out what's Jonah doing and what are they doing, we come to understand God's response there in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This shows that this was not just lip service on the part of the Ninevites. God saw what they did, and he mercifully saved them, from this disaster. Now, this language here of God relenting or changing his mind 
It can be tricky for us to understand sometimes, especially as we've read other parts of the Bible and it speaks of God's sovereignty and how he knows all things. We can wonder, does this mean, does God not know everything? Does God repent like we repent? Is God sovereign or is he changing? Well, it's it's really helpful to understand just theologically, this is analogical language. That's a big word connected to the word analogy. And all that it means is this. God is describing him something about himself in a way that is similar to us, but it's also different from us. It's not exact, it's analogous, because he's God and we are people. And so we can think of some of these differences. When we change our minds or change a course of action, it's usually because we learn something we didn't know, right? <laughs> we thought this made sense. We find out new information. Going to go this way instead. God's not finding out any new information. Uh, his change isn't because he didn't know how the Ninevites would respond. He knew exactly how they would respond. It's, it's not a surprise to him to get this new information. Another reason that we relent or that we repent, if we use that word to think about it, is because we were wrong and now we need to adjust and do something that's right. But when it comes to God, none of the options that he is considering would ever be wrong or not in accord with his perfect character of goodness, righteousness, justice. It would have been right for him to punish Nineveh, and it's also right for him to show mercy to Nineveh, especially as we come to see all that he does through Jesus on the cross. And so this language, when we hear of it, it's describing for us how God uses warnings in his perfect plan. It's like we heard in our scripture reading. He can warn people and nations to turn from their sin. And if they do, he is free to respond in pouring out mercy upon them. And so it's actually very beautiful and comforting to see how scripture speaks of God. Because it holds up for us things that can be difficult for us to reconcile and hold in, in perspective together. But what it holds up for us is this. God is both all-knowing and sovereign, and he's a God who responds and chooses to respond to the actions of people. You get the transcendence and the sovereignty and nothing outside of his control. And you also get this imminence of watching and seeing and adjusting based on what is good and fitting, all of which is according to his perfect divine decree. And so these are good things to think about theologically. If you have questions about these things, we can certainly talk more about it. It's kind of a systematic theology question right there. But what we have to do this morning is make sure that we don't miss the point in Jonah 3. Sometimes we do that. Oh, theological thing. Oh, that was in Jonah? Oh, um, I thought we were just in theology class. The point of this is God mercifully sent the Ninevites a warning through Jonah, didn't he? These wicked people, God sends them a warning, and they responded by God's grace with true repentance. 
Now, we're not sure how long it lasted. If you know your biblical history, you could say, I don't even think they repented because later Nahum's going to say they're really bad. Well, that was a 100 years later, and a lot can change from generation to generation, just like it did in Israel. But Jonah's making it clear here that there was genuine repentance, and because they repented, God mercifully spared them from destruction. And this was an act of God's mercy that would have been seen as scandalous to the people of Jonah's day. How in the world could God show that kind of mercy to them? And so it's a story of two responses. Jonah had been shown mercy. The Ninevites are shown mercy. And so what are we to learn from this passage? Well, in our remaining two points, we'll consider some applications together. First, we'll think about Jonah's response to God. We'll look at Jonah's response to God. As I've said, the entire book is highlighting this difference between Jonah, God's prophet, the one who's supposed to get it right, how he responds, and the response of the most unlikely of characters, right? And they come in pairs. In chapter 1, we have the sailors and their captain. In chapter 3, we have the Ninevites and their king. And they're contrasted to Jonah And the contrast is not favorable for Jonah at all. In our chapter, the thoroughness of the Ninevites' response is striking. They show repentance on virtually every level. And God saw it and says that's right and relents from his judgment. But what about Jonah? Jonah was steeped in God's word. Grew up hearing Torah from the day he was born, probably. He was familiar with God's ways. He was one of God's prophets, and you don't just get that job uh, for no reason, right? And yet, when, Jonah, when God's word comes to Jonah, what is his response? It's outright disobedience to go the other way. This time, he's silent, and he got up and went, but, but has he repented? Like the sailors and the Ninevites, what we find in Jonah's prayer is he promised some things, that he would change, that he would offer sacrifices and vows. But unlike them, Jonah never speaks of the evil that he has done. Jonah says a lot of good and biblical things in his prayer in chapter 2. But he never mentions his own sin. And he never mentions that God sent the storm because he was in rebellion against God's clear word to him. Jonah identifies himself as someone who fears Yahweh. And yet in chapter 3, we find that the animals of Nineveh are portrayed as more responsive to God than Jonah is. The Ninevites threw themselves upon God's mercy and they repented and they left the outcome up to God. Perhaps he will turn. Jonah goes, does what God says, but when he doesn't get the outcome he wants, He's angry. He's furious. It wasn't an open-handed obedience. It wasn't genuine repentance. His heart was not changed about the core issue. And so what we find with Jonah is that his response to God's mercy was really one of compliance. It was compliance. Now, what is compliance? I think it's helpful, kids, if we think about it this way. It's when you go along with something, even if your heart is not in it. 
If your parents tell you to clean your room and you go and you clean your room, you may do that because you know that the last time you refused to do it, it didn't go that well. Or maybe you watched a sibling refuse to do it and said, you know what, I think I'll just do it next time. And so you go back there and you start putting toys away or whatever that might be, but your heart is not in it. You might be mad at your parent for making you do it or you're just doing it to stay out of trouble so you can get on to what you really want to do. That's compliance, going along with something when your heart is not in it. The book of Jonah warns us about the danger of compliance instead of repentance. What it tells us is it's easy for people who have been around God's word for a while, maybe who know lots of verses, know what God generally asks of us, probably like many of us here. It's easy for those type of people to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're repentant when really we're just compliant. We're just going along with things. We may say many good and biblical things about God. We may affirm that we fear and we follow him. We may have pious-sounding prayers. People might want to come up to us afterwards and say, can I write down what you said? And yet all the while in speaking those prayers, there are things about the word of God that are ricocheting off of our hearts. We may go along with doing many of the things that God says to do. We could be involved in church, doing Christian things, staying away from the big sins that we know aren't becoming for people who call themselves Christians. But all the while, God's word hasn't touched my pride or my lust or my bitterness or my secret sin. But outwardly, I'm going along. Jonah gets up and he goes. He obeys. But what's Jonah's real alternative? I mean, he still probably smells like the inside of a fish. He may be still picking seaweed out of his ears. We don't know. And he says, I'll go this time, but when it doesn't turn out the way he wants it to, he's furious. And so also we may find ourselves going along with many good and godly things, not because our heart is aligned with God's heart of mercy, but because we want things to go a certain way. And the reality is if you've been a Christian for a while, the thought of going away completely different than going along with the Christian thing, that would take a lot of buy-in. So you just go along. It's kind of scary, isn't it? When I look at Jonah 3, I'm terrified. Because you see the subtlety of the way sin works. You see how deceptive it is. We can be self-deceived about our own compliance, can't we? We can look at what we're saying and what we're doing and we can, we can think this is repentance when in reality our heart is not aligned with God's heart. Jonah calls us to stop and to look at our hearts and say, is my heart more like Jonah's or is it more like what's going on with the Ninevites? And this isn't just Jonah's problem, is it? Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, speaks to the church at Ephesus. And he says, I see your good works. I see these things that you are doing. But you've lost your first love. God's people have a tendency to look at the things that we're doing, the ways that we're compliant, and to overlook our hearts. But the message of the book of Jonah, to him, to Israel at the time, to us, is to be aware of this outward compliance and to realize that we need God's mercy just as much for our compliance and our going along as the people of Nineveh needed it for their evil and their violence. That mercy is the remedy for compliance. There is good news about this whole situation. As scary as that self-deception of of compliant outward behavior is, the assurance of God's mercy is even greater than the scariness of that deception. Jonah holds up for us the darkness that can dwell in our hearts, and it, it shines a light on it for us. But then what the whole book is doing is shining a spotlight on the lavish mercy of God. If we look at the book, it's saying there's mercy for sailors. There's mercy for 120,000 people in Nineveh. There's mercy for Jonah. There's mercy for Israel. Friend, with whatever you may struggle with today, there is lavish mercy available to you. Your evil, your violence, your compliance, your self-righteousness, your pride, none of it is any match for the scandalous, overwhelming mercy of God. You may think, it's too late. I've disobeyed too many times. Yeah, Jonah gets two chances. I'm at ten. I'm at a hundred. I lost count at a thousand. You may think you've gone too far. I'm in too deep. This has been a part of my way of life for too long. Friend, even if your sin has brought you all the way to the bottom of the sea and you're so entangled in your own mess and you're in a pit that is so deep that you can barely even conceive of a light or a way out, the message of the book of Jonah is God's mercy from on high comes all the way to the bottom of the pit and it raises up those who turn to him because of his mercy and his grace. And the Ninevites, they, they threw themselves on God's mercy, right? And I love how they did it. They said, perhaps God will change. Perhaps God will relent. But then Jesus, in the New Testament, he says, something greater than Jonah has come. And there's a lot that's related to that. But one of the things that we know for sure is that his life and death and resurrection, it says that it's no longer a perhaps for those who turn and repent. It is assured that salvation comes to those who turn from their sins and look to the mercy of God. That verse that we know so well, do you you hear the assurance of it? For God so loved the world, Israel and Nineveh and Jonah and compliant people and wicked people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him not perhaps will not perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And what we see is through Jesus, 
death on the cross. It's not us who are cast into the depths of the sea, but it's our sin. And through his resurrection, we are taken from whatever pit we may have dug for ourselves or have found ourselves in in this fallen world. And we are raised not to just dry land, but to the heavenly glories of being united with Jesus forever. It's an amazing reversal. And so this this passage calls us, in whatever situation we may find ourselves, to respond to the mercy of God, to turn toward it, to receive it. Whether that's compliance, evil, or violence. And so that's glorious news. And that's, that's a big picture response to God's mercy. But there's one more thing that the book is pushing on that I think it would be remiss if we didn't consider it that's related to this. And we'll consider that with our third point. This book is also a warning about a specific heart issue that Jonah had that also tends to beset God's people. And we see that in point three with Jonah's response to others. God is trying to do something in Jonah's heart. It's part of the reason he gets this whole second chance. It's it's part of the reason the book is four chapters and not four verses, is he's trying to bring out something that's there to deal with it. In chapter one, we see that Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh with this message. Next week, we're going to see Jonah would rather die than watch God show mercy to those people. And that he cares more about a plant than he does about the destruction of 120,000 people in a city. And all of this is from a man who just received the most amazing mercy. He was full on disobedient as a prophet of God. And yet God reached down and he rescued him and gave him a second chance He and saved his life. Do you see the irony that's there? He can't bear the thought of the Ninevites receiving God's mercy or God giving them a second chance. You know, maybe God would do that, but Jonah sure does not want to be the agent of something like that. Now, this may sound extreme, but sometimes scripture points things in the extreme so we can see the subtleties in our own heart, right? We see Jonah's blatant disregard for others as one who had been shown mercy. And it calls us to ask, what is our heart toward the others around us? Do we have a lack of mercy for others? I find that when you think about point two, which is we tend to be compliant about things, we stay away from doing really bad things and we go along with the acceptable things, you combine that with this tendency to not have mercy towards others, and what you get is kind of this compliant lack of mercy. Sure, God could choose to show mercy to those type of people. We could stop and think for yourself, who are those type of people for you? that for you just seem beyond the pale of who God would save, who seem because of what they say or the lifestyle that they have as people that are just too far 
from God's mercy. Sure, God could choose them to show them mercy, but, but if he does, let's just be honest. It's going to be in spite of us, not because we're agents of God's mercy, is it? We may think to ourselves, God could never really be calling me to re- befriend those people or to move toward them. Surely he's not calling me to show mercy toward them. Or we may think, you know what? I'll be an agent of mercy. I read Jonah. I saw how God showed mercy. I'll show up and I'll truth bomb them. That's what they need to hear, right? You are wrong. 40 days you will be overthrown. God hates what you're doing. Fix it or else. Is that the way that God calls us to show mercy? You know, it's interesting we may find that as a rationalization and we'd say, look, I'm doing something that's in Scripture, but do you realize that our gospel mission to the world of spreading the Great Commission is never called to model the Old Testament prophets who were primarily sent to God's people. Instead, the model that we now build upon is the model of our Lord Jesus, how he interacted when he came to those who were unbelievers and who were those people, who were outside, who were beyond, the the tax collectors and the sinners. And we look at how Jesus interacted with them. He moved toward them in love. He dined with them. People on the outside, people, religious people said, this guy's a friend of those bad people. And you know, the only time Jesus assumes the posture of Old Testament prophet, the only time he goes and busts out the woe to you, is when he's speaking to whom? The Pharisees, the church people, (laughs) who saw the others as outside. And so it's just interesting for us to put all this together, isn't it? And to say, how are we responding to the Ninevites in our lives? Maybe you don't show outright disdain. Jonah's going to say some really mean things in chapter (laughs) 4. It's bad. And maybe you're not that far. You may say, I hope the Lord saves them. But you know, deep down, that would have to be solely his action and you will have no part of it. Maybe this is a person the Lord has already brought across your path. Maybe it's a coworker, a neighbor, someone you see every time you go into the gym or the store or the restaurant, and, and they're just there, and you look inside your heart and you say, what's the mercy meter going on? Maybe it's not even registering, and the Lord just wants to move that toward mercy that may move you toward them. Maybe it's a type of person that you just don't understand. You don't understand how they can think how they think. You don't understand how they could live the way they do. Is it possible that God may want you to befriend someone like that so you can learn what it is to have his heart of mercy toward them? The same heart that he had for those people of Nineveh may be the very people around us. Well, how do we deal with this? (laughs) I mean, when I preach that to myself, (laughs) that sounds too hard. 
can we just sing a happier song and go home? <laughs> um, sure, we could just throw out these kinds of things, but, but could I really change that way? Is there any kind of hope for a merciless heart like mine? What's the remedy? The call in the book of Jonah, the call to the people of Israel, the call to us is this. Respond to God's mercy yourself. Jonah didn't really think that he needed God's mercy for his sin. He was the one who feared Yahweh, the creator of the heavens, the sea and dry land. He was the one who God rescued from the depths and who would make sacrifices and vows. He was happy to accept God's mercy when it made his life go the way he wanted it to go. But he never once acknowledged that he personally was in need of God's mercy because of his sin. It's the sailors and the Ninevites who maybe needed God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, the way that God makes us into people who are merciful like him is by us coming to see and to respond to the mercy that he shows us each and every day. You see, the gospel frees us to honestly look inside and to confess our sin. Yes, you're right, God. Your word is true. I'm just being compliant. My heart is not in it. Yes, you're right, Lord. That desire is disordered. I I want it too much. You're right. Those words were sinful. You're right. Those thoughts are not new creation thoughts. But for each one of those sins comes the lavish mercy and grace of God. In Lamentations 3, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When that gospel word comes to us, we're able to say, in spite of our sin, thank you, Lord, for your steadfast love. Thank you for your unending mercy toward me today and right now. And when we see ourselves as the recipients of that kind of scandalous mercy and grace, then we start to see how much others would be blessed by knowing a God who is that merciful, gracious, and loving. And we can move toward them as an agent of that mercy. Jesus says those who are forgiven much, they love much, doesn't he? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word comes and it cuts us to the heart. It knows exactly how we are, how people tend to be, the things that we struggle with, the ways that we sin and fall and fail. And so we confess and we we pray that you would humble us that you would help us to see these things and to turn and repent, not like Jonah where we just keep going along, but where we truly stop and turn afresh to your mercy. And thank you that your word not only shows us our hearts, 
but it shows us the beauty of the Lord Jesus and all that he has accomplished for us because of your great love for us. And so we thank you that even though these are things that we struggle with even now and probably will till the day we die, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That all of these sins that maybe we even just became aware of today for the first time are not a surprise to you, but if we are trusting in Christ, they were forgiven at the cross. Will you help us to believe the wonders of this gospel? Will you help us to believe the power of your mercy? And will you make us people who want that for others as well? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.